welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. And today joining me is Paul Watson. Paul is a paramedic based in Glasgow and has been working for the Scottish Ambulance Service for almost eight years now. And he's taken on the role of project lead for end-of-life care. And that's involved drafting and releasing a series of guidelines currently around just-in-case medications as part of a project to look at bringing better palliative care across Scotland. Paul, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Certainly, I appreciate the invite. Thanks, Dave. So I guess the first thing is just to kind of highlight the challenges of palliative care in, in the community. What are the problems that the ambulance service faces and pre-hospital care providers face? I think the biggest challenge is centred around that single episode of care that we generally provide. You know, on the most part, we'll be meeting the patient for the first time. We won't have any prior knowledge of them or their medical history. We won't have previously built up a rapport with the patient or their family. And on top of that, we've got some sort of an emergency or a, a panic situation that has resulted in a triple nine call. So we've got that undifferentiated patient. And generally, prior, you know, we've got a very vague presentation. You know, we might know the patient's address and we might know that they're in pain. But other than that, we've not got any other information. Sometimes we've not even got the patient's name. So that in itself is a big challenge. Another challenge is we've got a lack of access to that patient's information. Generally, the only database that we can get any information on is the patient's ECS or key information summary. And that can be difficult to obtain, you know, physically obtain, or you might have signal issues out in the rural aspects of Scotland and such like. You know, we've got a lack of awareness and links with the wider team that's involved. And generally, we're in a different frame of mind as a, a typical ambulance service responder. We're thinking of the emergency care, ABCD approach, time-critical patients, whereas the end-of-life care patient is a, a different approach that kind of patient benefits from. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost the worst possible time to be dealing with end-of-life care when you've got the stress of an acute problem kind of looming over you. Yeah, and that's certainly where the ambulance service comes in. The, the patient will be on their trajectory, but there'll be some sort of catastrophic incident that will happen or some symptom that they're struggling to manage, which is resulting in them asking us specifically for help. In an ambulance service, people know that we can attend at any time. You'll always get a human interaction, which might be why they've called us if they're having difficulty reaching the rest of their team or they feel they need that rapid response. So being able to bring ourselves into that situation and deal with that emergency side you know, that's a key to being able to then holistically identify that patient's needs, sort of that emergency or that panic situation where it's the patient themselves or the family that's panicking and be able to calm that scene down a bit. I guess for for the basics responders, we kind of fall into two groups. Those guys who work in primary care, the the nurses and the doctors and from a GP background, who often know their patients and, and have got that relationship built up. But there's also those of us from a secondary care background and paramedics who, who don't necessarily know everybody. 
are there any tricks to trying to get a head start on on building that rapport? Well, it comes down to our experience and our communication skills, then on technical skills that we all have, being able to reassure the patient and the family that we're going to take care of the patient, whatever symptom that's brought us there. And then looking out for different clues that we might find on scene that could suggest that we're looking at a palliative or end-of-life care patient. It's not always obvious. Sometimes you'll go into a patient's house and you'll see a just-in-case box or they'll be in a hospital bed in the living room and there's clearly something going on that you can explore. Other times it will be quite subtle. So it's looking out for these different signs and using the tools that we've got available to us. I've mentioned the ECS, or the key information summary. That can be a welfare information. We've also got other tools such as SPICT tool, or SPICT for All, which is the supportive and palliative care indicators tool. And that's from the University of Edinburgh. And that helps the generalists, such as you know ourselves, or nurses, people that aren't usually taking care of palliative or end-of-life care, to be able to identify the patient we're looking at needs some sort of palliative care input or they might benefit for this type of approach. So that's got things like general indicators of poor or deteriorating health, as well as some specific indicators for different presentations, such like cancer or dementia, liver disease and such like that can be really helpful, giving a wee bit of structure, providing a bit of context to be able to identify these patients. When we're digging into the patient's history, one of the phrases that we can use is, you know, is this expected? And oftentimes the deterioration itself is actually unexpected. What we might find, though, is it's unexpected, but it's not surprising. So, you know, the patient is on a terminal trajectory. The patient or the family might be surprised that it's happening now, but actually when we're looking at that patient's history, it's not surprising. It's one of those things I find quite difficult, both in the hospital and seeing folk in the communities. You know that, as you say, that, that terminal trajectory, you know the patient is sadly going to die of their disease, but it's quite hard to pick out which patients are going to die in sort of minutes to hours and which patients are going to survive for weeks. Yeah, sometimes we see a general rule of thumb based on how quickly they're deteriorating. So if they're deteriorating over months, then we might expect their death to be over months. If they're deteriorated over the last couple of weeks, we're expecting their death in the next couple of weeks. And if they're deteriorated suddenly over hours or days, then we might expect their death to be quite intimate. But again, that's not a 100% specific. So we're looking for different patterns being less and less active, and sleeping for longer periods of time and spending less time awake. If they get reduced food intake, is their appetite reduced? Or quite a common presentation for ourselves is reduced fluid intake. And family members get quite apprehensive about them becoming dehydrated. A good entry into thinking about end-of-life palliative care would be asking yourself, would you be surprised if this patient was to die in the next 12 months? And that's quite a wide net, especially if you've not got a lot of experience in end-of-life or palliative care. But it can help get you onto that level of thinking, but instead of just taking the patient to the hospital, you're actually going to start exploring other options that might be a bit more relevant. So as you're exploring those options, you know, clearly we want to try and, as much as possible, involve the patient and presumably the family as well in in that decision-making process. 
are there any any tips as to how you can make that shared care work in practice? Yeah, definitely. So that's key. The whole concept of this end of life care is what suits the patient, looking to respect their wishes. First and foremost, address the reason why we've been called to the patient, listen to their concerns or their family's concerns, and start managing those symptoms if that's appropriate. We need to understand as well that the patient might have a, a different preferred place of care to their preferred place of death and how we manage that. And also that the patient's wishes may change with the context of their symptoms or their care burden. You know, earlier in the disease, they may have wished for all their care to happen at home, but actually as their illness has progressed, their decisions changed. So it's been able to respect that. If we can ease the patient's concerns, the concerns of the family, then it will really help us deliver the wishes of that patient. They feel that they're getting the support they need, both immediately and follow-up, which is important for once we leave, how is that patient going to access further care, be able to facilitate their preferred wish if that is to stay at home. Now, I guess that kind of forward-looking aspect is leads us nicely into thinking about anticipatory care which is almost even more difficult when you're there in an emergency mindset about where we can go to to prevent symptoms rather than playing catch up with them. Yeah certainly anticipatory care planning is is key especially for us in being able to facilitate that patient's wishes. Quite a useful tool is the REDMAP tool by EC4H. This is a handy one-page document that really helps us structure that conversation around deterioration and what actions, management plans that we can have for that patient. We'll get a copy of that and put it up with the podcast so we've got that accessible for folk. That'd be ideal. So it's a one-page document. It lists the approach that you can take to facilitate communications in this shared decision-making. And the structure really helps the clinician feel confident about the discussion that they're about to take place. And there's also quite handy infographic versions of the red map. So it's a really worthwhile framework to use. And we're currently working with EC4H to produce a ambulance service specific version that just suits our needs a wee bit better, centered around that single episode of care. And that takes us nicely, as you say, on to anticipate the care planning. So first point of contact is often the patient's ECS or key information summary, like we've mentioned a few times. And if we're thinking about our colleagues with basics, you may need to phone up the ambulance control centre, access that information that could be relayed over the phone. And that could contain really pertinent information and uh, provide us with the ability to take care of that patient in their own home. It could have their key contact numbers, for example, of their wider team. And there might also be, in certain health boards, the respect document. Sure, this is in the podcast notes as well. This is a really handy anticipatory care plan for this emergency situation. So it stands for the Recommended Summary Plan for Emergency Care and Treatment. It's two sides of A4, so it's really useful in an emergency situation where you're not getting overloaded by information. It will discuss the patient's diagnosis, their communication needs, and as well as asking the patient's preference whether they would prioritise sustaining life at the expense of some comfort or they might prioritise comfort at the expense of sustaining their life. 
And this is not a binary decision, you know, it's a sliding scale. So it's really key to understanding with that patient's wishes well. It's got a section for clinical recommendations for emergency care and treatment and has a section for resuscitation decisions. It also lists the patient's capacity and how they were involved in making the plan and includes patients' emergency contacts. So this could be the legal proxy, friends, family, the relevant people to them, the GP and the lead consultant for whatever underlying condition that they've got. It's a really useful document, but unfortunately it's not available across Scotland just yet. It sounds like it would be a real advantage to have when you're on your own in somebody's house trying to make that sort of decision. It sounds like a, a useful handrail to guide you through things. It really is. It's that support that you need. It brings that big, wide patient context into your decision making. And it also helps you to ensure that the patient's making informed decisions because you can see the evidence that they've spoke to their, the professionals in their care about the potential for deterioration rather than you arriving on scene and having to have these conversations within 10, 15 minutes when you might not understand their disease trajectory particularly well or their history. So it really is the key between being able to provide us holistic care or not is having these anticipated care plans in place and particularly respect documents quite handy for our use case. Now, I want to just dig into something that you talked about a minute ago in terms of the sliding scale between sustaining life and symptom control and use it as a bit of a gateway to talk about symptom control because that's often the practical aspect of why we're there because there is pain or breathlessness or uh, respiratory secretions. How are we best to tackle these? So we've got a really good resource, the Scottish Palette of Care Guidelines. They're available online, a simple couple-page document that discusses the first-line medications that we can use for these patients. And hopefully they have been identified prior as requiring end-of-life care, and these medications are available on scene for us to avoid any unnecessary delays. And also help if it is ambulance service responding to be able to manage these symptoms that we might otherwise be unable to manage. So it would be really useful to be familiar with this guideline, nice and simple. A lot of the medications, medications that we might carry anyway, for responding to emergencies such as morphine and midazolam. And being able to manage the patient's symptoms, the reason that they've called us in a timely manner. One of my worries is always when you've got a patient that you don't know and you don't know what their kidneys are up to, you don't know what their background is like and they're in acute pain, trying to balance treating their symptoms with not giving them a respiratory arrest um, and trying to kind of walk that line between symptom management and and causing their death. I'm just interested to see what your kind of thoughts are in terms of, of how we manage that as clinicians. That's quite a common concern, especially my own colleagues. They've got the fear of hastening that death. But understanding if we're following the guidelines, the dosage that we're given of these medications won't hasten their death. They'll provide symptom control, but they won't hasten their death. The patient has phoned in crisis, so it is reasonable to expect the patient to deteriorate quickly. And that might be soon after you give your medication, but it's good to be reassured that actually the dosages that we are given are safe and that if they're just in case medications will be prescribed to that patient taking in consideration of their underlying baseline opiates and such like. Using the subcutaneous route is very helpful as well. It's a slightly slower 
absorption. So we're getting a more predictable effect to that medication. In terms of concerns for the patient's kidneys and such like, perhaps the patient's not got any just-in-case medications they're presenting in pain and they're on a baseline opiate that's not morphine. That might be the only opiate that we carry. The concern with their kidneys is that they're going to have a, a cumulative effect. So actually that single bolus dose, they sort out their immediate symptom and then arrange an appropriate follow-up. It's a useful tool that we've got. That's brilliant. And I think it's something that always makes people nervous because there is this feeling that we've somehow caused the death, as you say, and hastened it. But having that reassurance that what's in the guideline is is in the guideline for, for a good reason. Yeah, that's certainly true. And when we look at other symptoms, such as breathlessness, we know morphine and other opiates at the doses that we're giving them will address the feeling of breathlessness without causing any respiratory depression at all. And we know that we're not going to give this medication and then run out the door. We're going to be staying with that patient for a little while. We're going to make sure that that intervention has been appropriate. And it's been effective also. We don't want to underdose patients in that timely access to symptom control. And I guess it harks back to what we were talking about towards the beginning in terms of both dealing with the acute situation, but also trying to do some preventative work to stop it from happening in the future. Yeah, definitely. So one of the best things we can do is we address the concern that they've had that they've called us for. And then liaise with the patient's wider team, if that's our district nurses, depending if we're in and out of hours, how we access that wider team. But being able to reassure the patient and the family that their care is going to be continued, that they're going to get a call back or they're going to get a visit from their local team. And that stops the concern of the symptom reoccurring. And it often would only need that single episode of care from ourselves if we're followed up the best that we can. So we've talked about pain and about breathlessness. What other kind of key symptoms would you want to be on the lookout for? Sort of key symptoms would be the terminal agitation. And this can be quite distressing for patients and their family members to see. Worthwhile remembering that as well as our pharmacological intervention, which would be typically midazolam in this situation, We've also got our non-pharmacological options, making sure that the environment is a calming environment, maybe some music in the background, setting the lights low, removing any unwanted distraction or noise, and asking yourself, is there something else causing this agitation? Is the patient in pain? They've got another presentation that might be reversible, constipation, for example, and we can address the cause of the agitation. Another common symptom would be the nausea and vomiting, particularly unpleasant to deal with and can cause other issues like dehydration and it's very upsetting for the patient and the family. So if they've got or just in case medications, we'll have access to level micromazine, which is quite a wide spectrum antiemetic, can be very helpful for this cohort of patients. And failing that, as an ambulance service, we'll probably carry a dancitron, which can be helpful in some circumstance. And finally, the last common symptom that we'll come across is secretions. And we have our just-in-case medication for that. We've got our hyacinth, which is fairly effective, but it's important to realise it's not always effective. And a big addition we can bring to the table here is the reassurance that we can give the family that the patient themselves isn't distressed or in pain at all. With this audible 
noise. It's more distressing to those that can hear it, you know, the family members surrounding. So letting the family be reassured that the patient's not in pain, they're not distressed, listen to the, the rhythm of the breathing, it's nice, it's regular. It's just maybe an unpleasant noise. Let them know that we can use non-pharmacological options, maybe positioning to encourage postural draining. And that reassurance is, is a big part. Let them know that the patient's not in any pain. You know, if in good health, if you get anything in the back of your throat, it's a very highly nerve-ending part of the body. It's very sensitive. You're going to cough right away. This patient, if they've got these secretions, are so deeply unconscious that they're not feeling that at all. So they're not distressed. Being able to reassure the family is key for that. And reassure ourselves that the medication that we can provide is good, but it's not always effective. You might be tempted to do other things like suctioning an airway if you think you can get rid of the secretions, but this is typically not recommended. One, the secretions can come back, and then the family might be encouraged to call again rather than using their wider team. Any irritation to that soft tissue will cause further secretions, just making the problem worse. And in the current climate with the coronavirus, we would have to treat that as an APG and wear the appropriate PPE and such like, and the effect that that might have on the family is worth considering. Absolutely. I mean, it seems that for every for every drug, there's almost an equal amount of communication and expectation setting and goal setting that comes alongside it. Yeah, and hopefully they've had these discussions beforehand as part of their anticipated care planning, as part of getting prescribed the just-in-case medications, that both the patient and their family have got expectations of what is possible. We've got a lot of options at our disposal to make sure that that patient isn't in any pain, isn't feeling breathlessness. So it's important that we realise that there is escalation in place there if our, our immediate management hasn't been particularly effective. Now, I want to touch on one other area. A lot of the time, basics responders are are responding to trauma. And there is a subset of patients who, during extraction from a vehicle or during the sort of initial phases of their care, you realise that actually they are unlikely to survive this episode and they have an unsurvivable injury. And I've certainly found myself having discussions about whether it is the right thing to transport a patient over a long distance from rural Scotland when they're unlikely to survive. Just wondering about your thoughts in terms of how we make those decisions and when we make those decisions in that really acute phase. Well, speaking as a, a paramedic, I wouldn't be particularly experienced in those kind of decisions. So the big take-home message for me would be to involve a wider team, to speak to the trauma network, a trauma desk, or get access to the medical retrieval service and speak to the clinicians that are experienced and can appropriately triage these patients and determine what would be the most appropriate. So that would be my take-home message here, is start speaking, share that decision-making. You know, we sometimes we're on scene ourselves, so we think we need to make all the decisions ourselves. Actually, there's a big wide team out there. We've all got access to mobile phones and radio networks. So let's discuss the patient, the wider team, the professionals that we've got available to us. And is there that phone a friend option for palliative patients who are on a, a longer trajectory? Is there is there a, a kind of a resource for discussing these patients when their needs are more complex than we can solve easily? 
Uh, there certainly will be. And this is going to be dependent on which health board you're in. So we're hoping in the patient's anticipated care plan or their key information summary or somewhere else there'll be the relevant contacts for that patient. The different hospices I've been involved with so far have all been incredibly supportive, making sure that they know just phone us. We are here 24-7. We're willing to give you the professional advice and support you and the family in the management of that patient. So know what's in your local area. It's a key message. And every professional that I've dealt with so far has been so keen to ensure that we speak to them, make sure that we've got that support for us and ultimately the patient. It's important to understand that this patient's probably got such a, a wide team that's put a lot of investment into that patient that anticipate the care planning and make sure that they can get their preferred place of care and preferred place of death. So they're really invested in making sure that 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 happens. They would hate to find out that you know, an ambulance had been called to the patient and because we couldn't get that professional support we needed, we were forced to take that patient an appropriate conveyance to A&E, for example. So they're going to be incredibly helpful to make sure that all the hard work they've done up to now carries on and we can make sure we give that holistic care to the patient. Absolutely. It's that team approach to kind of to try and avoid these patients ending up stuck on a trolley in an A&E queue, which is, yeah, has got to be absolutely key. That's certainly a horror that would be worth avoiding if at all possible. Yeah, definitely. You know, that patient's got much more nuanced needs than a rickety trip in an ambulance to wait in an A&E corridor. It is important to understand sometimes that A&E is an appropriate uh, destination. It's all based on that, that, that patient's need at the time, but appropriate conveyance is what we would like to discuss making sure we're speaking to the patient's wider team. It could be that there's a hospice bed that that patient could be taken to instead, rather than the, the local A&E. There could be hospice at home and carers that could come and deliver care to the patient where they are and start a new service such like that. So there's a lot of options available to us, and it's important not to exclude any of these options. Even A&E is sometimes appropriate. Fantastic. So all of our presenters, we've been asking them to give three top tips for basics responders dealing with palliative care in, in the community. What would you suggest has been the kind of the key take home messages? For me, the first one is remember to check the patient's emergency care summary, their key information summary. A lot of time we forget about it, but actually it's a really useful tool. And over the last couple of weeks with the context that we're in just now, there's been a great push to upload more and more information to the key information summary. So there'll be a wealth of information on there on patients that a couple of weeks ago would have been at all written on there. Secondly, I'd say don't feel you need to make decisions on your own. There's a lot of support once we start picking up the phone and speaking to the patient's wider team. They're going to be very interested in helping us out. And lastly, and most importantly, don't be afraid to ask your patient directly about their wishes. You know, They've most likely put a lot of thought into their choices and they'll be very grateful that we're going to listen to them. At the end of the day, it's all about their wishes and making sure they get the care and the dignity and death that they would wish for. It can sometimes feel apprehensive if you're going to start bringing these topics up with a patient. But in fact, they're more prepared for their conversations than we are. So it's pushing past that barrier and actually speaking to the patient. They're the most important person here. Absolutely. Paul, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on to chat to us. I know you're at the start of a project that's going to hopefully 
take palliative care from the emergency and paramedic point of view to a much better place than it has been in the past. So it'll be really interesting to see how this develops over time. Yep, thank you very much. It is an exciting road that we're going down and there's a lot of support out there. So it's just tying us in to the different services that are, are already running and make sure we can deliver that care for the patients that we already go and see. It's been great for the invite along to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Thank you.